Thank you so much. Chapter 6 in your Bibles this evening. Galatians chapter 6. As you're turning there, and I'll join you there in just a moment, I was going to preach from the book of Ruth again this evening and may pick up with that next Sunday night. Uh, And yet there is a connection between uh, an event that takes place in the book of Ruth and what we're going to consider from Galatians chapter 6 this evening. A number of times over the last several weeks as we've been uh, meditating on preaching messages considering uh, the book of Ruth, uh, a thought that I had really never had before as it relates to the story of Naomi and Ruth is the reception that the people of Bethlehem gave to Naomi when they came home. Uh, You know, Naomi and Elimelech, from the perspective of at least some people in Bethlehem, could have been considered deserters. You bailed, you're bitter, you deserve what you get. That could have been the perspective. And yet, when I think about how Boaz uh, demonstrated kindness, and then the end of chapter number 1, and I'll just read a few verses here. So they went... The two, until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. How much? All the city. All the city was moved about them. And they said, well, it's about time. No. Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, who was the one that had the the caustic, harsh response? It wasn't the people of the city. It was Naomi. Call me not Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? Seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. And then here's a token of the mercy of God. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest, the early of the two harvests, uh, so that the longest stretch of provision was assured for them. And I'm just really moved by that, moved by how the entire city received Naomi and Ruth back. Now, we would find Ruth referred to as Ruth the... Moabitess, and yet before it's over with in just a short time, within a year's time, maybe even a few months, Boaz will tell Ruth, all the city of the daughters of my people dost know that thou art a a virtuous woman. What a reception for a bitter woman. What a reception for a Moabite woman. It's a tremendous testimony of how, and I want you to get this, how God's people should receive someone who's coming home. With that being said, join me in Galatians chapter 6. Verse number 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love. John 13. James chapter 2, the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. John 13. 
love as Jesus has loved us. And by this shall all men know the, that we're his disciples and we have love one to another. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse number three. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. That statement there, when he is nothing, is not stating it may be or it may not be. It's stating it is. Okay. Can I just say this for the record for all of us tonight? We are nothing. Okay. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But if a man thinks himself to be something, when in truth of fact he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. But how should we view ourselves? Let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Verse number five, for every man shall bear his own burden. It's a future tense looking forward, I believe, ultimately to the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about this in the course of the message this evening. But I'd like to preach a message tonight entitled, Restoring a Brother. Restoring a Brother. Let's pray. Father, would you help us in the remainder of our time together this evening? Thank you for scripture that helps us through uh, times like we see described in this passage of scripture. I ask, Lord, that you'd help us to have the mind and the heart of Christ and to understand the importance of this work of restoration when a brother's been overtaken in a fall. Lord, that you would help us to desire as a church to be a restoring church. And a, a church that doesn't sweep sin under the rug, but a church that deals with it biblically, but when there is proper repentance and brokenness over sin, then we are first in line to restore. And so God help us tonight, I pray, as we consider this important passage in Jesus' name. Amen. I would state this as a proposition for us tonight, what we really need to be focused on making sure that we do as a church, and that is this, spiritual churches seek to restore a brother who falls and wants to get right. Spiritual churches seek to restore a brother who's fallen and in repentance and humility wants to get right. And the Bible makes that very clear in this passage of Scripture. I just want to move through and give us basically five movements or thoughts. The first is the context of this passage is family. Do you notice the very first word with which Paul begins this chapter? Say it with me. Brethren. Brethren. The context is family. This church is a family. Okay? Okay. This church is a body. And every one of us that are members of it, we are like the member of a body. And Paul would even say in 1 Corinthians 12, if one hurts, how many of us should hurt? All of us. Okay. If one's rejoicing, all of us should rejoice. Okay. Try smashing your thumb with a hammer and find out if every other part doesn't feel the pain. You know, you don't just isolate it, everything hurts. Okay. But the context here is family. And that's important for us to keep in mind as we see Paul teaching about this important work of restoration of a brother who's been overtaken in a fault. And really giving us a spiritual pathway for how to do that. I want you to notice, secondly, not only is the context family, but secondly, the condition or the situation or the circumstance is a brother who has been overtaken in a fault. So the context is family. And the circumstance or the condition is a brother who's been overtaken in a fault. Notice the second word of the chapter. Brethren, what is it? If. 
Now, we've talked about this before. There are some uses of if in the Bible that's uh, if in the sense of if the sun comes up tomorrow. Is that going to happen? Okay, we could say it this way, since the sun is coming up tomorrow. But that's not the condition that Paul uses here. It's not the if that he uses. This is if I had a million dollars. <laughs> okay, guess what? I don't. Okay, this is speaking about a rare situation or circumstance. We could say it this way, if ever a man be overtaken in a fault or on the occasion that a brother is overtaken in a fault, or whenever a brother or a man be overtaken in a fault. Okay? It's not talking about something that should just be a ho-hum occurrence that we just are, oh yeah, okay, here we go. This is a sobering and a serious time. What does John say? First John chapter number 2, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin... Okay, there's that condition that's left open because we're in fallen bodies. If any man sin, praise God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay. But there is a condition or a circumstance here that is referring to what should not be a frequent event in the life of a church. But we've been given help when it does occur. If a man be overtaken in a fault... Our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking what? What does a lion do? What's one of his tactics? It's to ambush, to crouch, to prowl. That is part of the meaning of the word overtaken. If a man be overtaken, it's the idea of being jumped, being surprised. It's the idea of being ambushed. Now, there is a part of this word that has with it the idea of a man or a woman that made an initial choice, maybe in some kind of emotional or struggle, some kind of issue, they reached out to a coping mechanism, if I can say it this way, as the world calls it, to just get a little bit of relief, and they ended up in an addiction that was bigger than they were. And can I say this? The consequence of sin is more than they reckon for. Let me just say this. The consequence of sin is more than any of us reckon for. But it's the idea of a brother who was overtaken, in a sense ambushed, or he got overtaken in a situation that caught him by surprise. It was bigger than he expected, and now he's in serious trouble. If a man be overtaken in a fault, the word fault here is a word that literally means while walking along with others, this person slipped and fell off the path. It's to slip or to fall by the side of. And again, it carries with it the idea of some unintended consequences. So see the picture that Paul is painting here as he gives us instruction on this important work of restoring a brother. The context is family. The condition is a fault. Now, I want you to notice here that the Apostle Paul is not talking about some unrepentant rebellion where a person is just blatant. Okay, that's where church discipline comes in. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Nor, on the other hand, when he uses this word, if, that speaks of, a, of an occasional occurrence, but not something that, let me just say this, and it, it's typically associated with churches in the South, where they've created an atmosphere where people can live in carnality, where believers can live in carnality, and then 
When I get caught, we can just kind of stand up before the church and shed a few tears and say, I'm sorry, and then go back the very next week and do the same thing. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Okay. Paul here is talking about an infrequent occurrence. Okay. And he's not talking about being tolerant or soft-coating carnality. Or, By the way, when leaven gets into a body, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 7, it leavens how much of the lump? The whole lump. Okay. So the context is the family. The condition is a fault. A brother who's been overtaken and he's slipped or fallen by, can I say this, the road which we're traveling as a family. Are you with me? But I want you to notice a third part of this passage, and that is this. Correction is to be done by faithful brethren. The work of correction, restoration, is to be done by faithful brethren. Paul says this in the context of family, brethren, the circumstance of a fault, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual do what? Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And so the correction is to be done by faithful brethren. When Paul says, ye which are spiritual, he's using a plural pronoun. He's talking about you, plural. Okay, You which are spiritual. Well, how do we know who's spiritual? You ever thought about that before? I've been out visitation before, soul winning, or talking to a person out in public. Ask a person who doesn't go to church anywhere... I'll ask them about their relationship with the Lord and say, well, I'm a very spiritual person. You ever had that happen before? Talking to somebody who doesn't even go to church, I'm a very spiritual person. What do they mean by that? That they, a couple times a year, get some kind of an emotional high and maybe go out and sit on a log under a nice, bright, moonlit night and have an experience. And because of that, they're spiritual. Or they talk about praying to God. And I believe in God. I'm a spiritual person. Believing in God doesn't make you a spiritual person. Me, a spiritual person. What is it? If, if those who are spiritual are the ones who are tasked by God with this work of restoration, how do we know who's spiritual? You which are spiritual. Well, it's interesting that chapter 5 is one of the classic passages in all the Bible on the person of the Spirit of God, the believer walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit being produced in the believer's life. Visible evidences... Okay, that a person is spiritual. The word spiritual that is used here is the idea of under the control of or the influence or characterized by the person of the Spirit of God. Okay. So do we have any evidences of that in chapter number five that would help us decide? Because I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, and several of the commentators I read brought this up. They would say like this, what do you do, just take a raise of hands? Okay, who are the spiritual ones? Most of the time, people who are truly spiritual are aware of their own frailties. And so we look at the fruit, not necessarily what they profess. And notice, look if you would at verse number 16. Paul said to the Believers in the churches of southern Galatia, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse number 18, but if ye be led of who? The Spirit. 
So walking in the Spirit, walking under His control, His influence, under His guidance, being led by Him. I like to think of it this way, walking in the atmosphere of His presence, breathing His presence, walking in Him. Being led of the Spirit. Then we notice verse number 22, in contrast to the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me if you know these nine or want to read along, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There's never going to come a point when the Lord says, "Uh, too much love. Too much joy. Okay. But what's being done here? When Paul says, ye which are spiritual, he's referring back to the characteristics that he gave in chapter number 5 about people who are filled with the Spirit, people whose lives are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. So that, get this, a believer who has a harsh approach, a caustic approach, they're not qualified. Okay? Because those that are spiritual are going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean we soft-coat sin. I get that. understand that. Doesn't mean that we don't deal with it firmly and biblically. But let me just say this there is never any place for meanness. Okay? And I'm glad I'm preaching to a church that says to that. Amen. Okay. And so, the correction is to be done by faithful brethren who are spirit filled, ye which are spiritual. Restore such an one in what? The spirit of meekness. The word meekness, the word spirit here that Paul uses is the idea of attitude, okay, the trajectory of my heart, if you would. And the spirit of meekness, this speaks of a humble gentleness. In other words, the work of restoration is not me looking down on poor Josh when he's been overtaken in a fault. And secretly thinking in my heart, I'd never do that. The spirit of meekness is not looking down my nose at him. The spirit of meekness is coming alongside of him and both of us looking up at the standard of Jesus Christ. Okay? Humble gentleness. And when I have that perspective, okay, that qualifies me to be involved in the work of restoration in a believer's life. So there is correction that is to be done by faithful brethren who are spirit-filled and who manifest the spirit of meekness. In a sense, Paul expands on that beginning in verse number 3. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. My dad used to say years ago to us when we began preaching, the man who gets his kicks out of preaching against sin is the least qualified to do it. We think ourselves to be something when in fact we're nothing. We're only deceiving ourselves. And notice what Paul says, verse number 4, but let every man prove or test or scrutinize his own work 
Then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Just to sum up what Paul is saying right there. He's saying this. Listen, when it comes to this whole situation, he said, you don't judge yourself by comparing yourself to somebody else. And gain your your self-acceptance or your rejoicing based on the fact that I have determined that I'm better than that person. I would never do what they did. Okay. That's not the standard. Comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, they are not wise. Okay. My Bible has a footnote here that takes me to Luke 18, chapter, or chapter 18, verse 11. You remember what happened in Luke 18, verse 11? Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a publican that went to the temple to pray. And remember, the Pharisee stood thus with himself and said, God, I thank thee that I am not like this publican. His rejoicing came from comparison with somebody who he deemed to be worse off than himself. In the divine analysis, who was the worse off? The Pharisee was. And it was that publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, wouldn't even lift up his face. It was the publican that went home justified. Okay. Verse number five, future tense verb that Paul uses here, for every man shall bear his own burden. Uh, the word burden that is used here uh, speaks of a small burden that was uh, the backpack of a Roman soldier, his rucksack as a soldier. And one man could carry it. And what Paul is essentially saying here, listen, don't get all occupied judging everybody else and comparing yourself to everybody else because there's a day coming, understood, at the judgment seat of Christ where everybody's going to answer for their own backpack. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that day. Every man should bear his own burden. Now, there's application for the time and now, too. Nobody should have an entitlement mentality and expect other people to carry a load that they should be bearing. Okay. But I want you to notice a fourth thought, and that is this. As we think about this passage, the context is family. The condition or circumstance that Paul's referring to is a brother who's overtaken in a fault. The correction is to be done by faithful brethren who are spirit-filled, manifesting the spirit of meekness, not thinking of themselves Above that which is true, but I want you to notice number four, part of their spirit of meekness is manifested in the consideration of their own frailty. Notice the text. We are to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Do you know what the word considering there? I'm going to, again... I've joked before and said I know a little Greek and he runs a restaurant down in the corner in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. Okay. I'm going to, the, the English word considering in your King James Version, I'm going to pronounce for you, not to impress you, because this is maybe one of five or six Greek words I can pronounce. But I'm going to pronounce it for you and I want you to tell me what you hear. The Greek word is scopeo. What word do you hear? Scope. So when Paul says, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. You know what he's saying? Put the scope on yourself. 
And that will contribute to a spirit of meekness. So you, you do a biblical job. I do a biblical job when it comes to this important work of re- restoration. Put the crosshairs of judgment on yourself. And understand this. Get it. This is not easy for us to admit. But I want you to understand something. Given different circumstances, different time, maybe a different sin, it could be me. And by the way, if somebody's sitting here thinking, no, not me, take heed lest you fall. Okay. And so there's the consideration of frailty. I want you to notice verse number two. And a final thought before we move to a conclusion, and that is this. As we think about this work of restoring a brother, Paul shows us that the context is family. The condition of the circumstance is a brother overtaken in a fault. Correction is to be done by faithful brethren who are spirit-filled and have a spirit of meekness. They are to do so in the consideration, the scoping of their own frailty, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. And then I want you to notice this. Spiritual believers in the work of restoration will understand that carrying this burden with a brother who's been overtaken in a fault fulfills the law of Christ. It's no accident. We often talk about verse number two, bear you one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. But the context is tying it to verse number one. A brother who's got a a burden that has overtaken him, something that has gripped him, it's become bigger than him. And maybe in it becoming bigger than him, he thought maybe he could handle it. She thought she could handle it. And sin with its consequences, obviously, as it always will, becomes more than that individual could handle. They cry out for help or it's seen that they need help. There's an exposure that takes place. And I am not to say, aha. But I'm to see a brother who's under a burden that's bigger than he can carry. And I'm to get down next to him. I'm to put my shoulder to that burden and I'm to say, okay, let me help you carry this. Let me help you get through this. Remember when I was kneeling by Josh's side here just a moment ago and I said, that's the perspective, not a believer looking down their nose at somebody as if I would never do that, but kneeling down on the same level and both of us looking up. As I think about the important principles that guide us when it comes to restoration, I want us to understand tonight that both the standard by which we deal with a situation like this that Paul's talking about and the spirit with which a believer is dealt with, the standard and the spirit is not me. The standard and the spirit with which we deal with situations like this is whose spirit? Christ's spirit. If we rated all of the forgivers in the world, who would be at the top of the list? (laughs) Jesus is the apex of forgivers. Father, forgive them they know not what they do. I want you to notice the word restore. 
And then I'll bring this to a conclusion. So what does it mean to restore? I actually, this is, must, must be of the Lord, because I had meant to define the word restore earlier in the message and forgot. And then when I was looking to conclusion, I'm like, wait a minute. So maybe the Lord's concluding the message His way. I want you to keep your hand in this passage, and I want you to follow with me to several other passage, passages in the Scripture. The word restore, translated in this passage, restore, but the underlying word in the original Greek language, though it's translated in other places by different English words, the word restore, this idea is used in several other passages of Scripture. So this work of restoring a brother who's been overtaken in a fault. Go with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 20. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 20. And they, speaking of the disciples, straightway left their nets and followed him, speaking of Jesus. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father. What's the next word? Mending their nets. It's the same word translated restore. It's the idea of mending a net, something that has been useful, but through a fault, has been torn, and needs to be repaired for what purpose? Future usefulness. And so the idea of restore is to mend nets. Go to Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 16. Jesus is in the temple, and the children are crying out, praise to him, to the Lord. Verse number 16, the Bible tells us that the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. Verse number 15, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to David. They, the chief priests and scribes, were sore displeased and said unto them, Hearest thou unto him, Jesus, hearest thou what they say? Quiet these kids up. These kids are testifying to your deity. And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast, what's the word? Perfected praise. It's the same word translated restore. The word perfected. It's not talking about making sinless, and that's not the idea. But it's talking about using something that normally wouldn't be considered the best means, but putting it to good use. Okay? Perfected. Taking that which the chief priests and Pharisees, the praise of kids, and shut those little kids up. They're just kids. What do they know? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. God takes that and gets great praise to himself. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Now, when you think of the church at Corinth, what's one of the first words that comes to your mind? Carnal. Carnal. Was there good unity at Corinth? Oh, no. Divisions, schisms. Notice what Paul says to this church that's divided 
Verse number 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Look at that. You know, Paul's a southerner. That you all speak the same thing. Okay. <laughs> and that there be, notice this, that there be no divisions among you. Now notice this, but that ye be, what are the next three words? All three of those words perfectly joined together translate the same word restore in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1. Taking something that's been disjointed and putting it back into joint. You ever had a bone disjointed? Shoulder out of socket? Hurts, doesn't it? And it hurts getting put back in too, doesn't it? Okay. But how necessary is it? That's the idea of perfectly joined together. Here's a church that's got divisions and schisms, and Paul says, I would that you be perfectly joined together. Notice, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse number 11. Again, to this same church, though in this second letter, this church that's still dealing with some schisms, notice verse number 10. 2 Corinthians 13, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Verse number 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. Notice, if you would, the statement, be perfect. It's the same word translated restore in Galatians 6. He's not talking about sinlessness, but he's saying be mended. Be re-put back together. If you've been dislocated, get put back together. That's the idea. Notice, if you would, two final passages. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 21. Hebrews chapter 13, and verse number 21. And then we'll consider a final verse in 1 Peter and conclude. Hebrews chapter 13, and verse number 21. Let's begin with verse 20. Now the God of peace... That brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you what? Perfect. Same word as restore in Galatians 6.1. Put you back together. By the way, do you notice what it is that puts us back together, that mends us when we've all been broken by sin? It's the blood of Jesus. Okay. Look, if you would, at 1 Peter Chapter 5 and verse number 10. One final verse. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, what are the next three words? Make you perfect. Same word translated restore in Galatians chapter 6. Mend you from physical suffering. Mend you from the brokenness that sin brings in our life. You see the broad context with which this word is used. But the grace of God mends us, makes us perfect. Go back to Galatians chapter number 6, if you would. And we'll conclude tonight. May I say that one of the greatest works that a local church does is this work of restoration. We don't sweep things under the rug. Church shouldn't do that. You shouldn't make light of it. By the way, the church at Corinth overreacted and Paul had to correct them. 
because they had overreacted in a situation and weren't restoring and forgiving the brother who had gotten right. And they were in greater danger of the consequences of being an unforgiving church. But the work of restoring a brother is one of the most important and, may I say, spiritual works that a church can do. When a brother falls in repentance and brokenness, desires to get right. So Paul shows us the context is family. The condition is the fault of a brother. He's overtaken in it. Correction is to be done by faithful brethren. We are to do so with the consideration of our own frailty. And when a brother is overtaken in a fault and the burden of those consequences, we are to, in fulfilling the law of Christ, we are to help him carry that burden. And in so doing, we are qualified to help in the work of mending a broken net, resetting a broken bone. Why? So that the brother restored can have future usefulness. That's the goal of a setting like this. Let's pray. Father, help us as we bring this service to a conclusion. As we sing in a moment, I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to let these things soak down into our hearts, especially as in a moment we're going to be given the responsibility, the opportunity to apply them. And we ask for your help in the remaining moments of this church service. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.